Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 276 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with storm and landscape photographer, Tim Baca. Tim was recommended to me by one of my favorite photographers and humans, Wayne Suggs, and so I was quite excited to chat with him. I've also always been fascinated with storm chasing as it relates to photography, and so it was great to chat with Tim about his experience and to hear him tell stories from the field. Before we get started, I wanted to continue to encourage listeners to join me over on Nature Photographers Network. NPN is a great place for seeing photographs, receiving and sending critique, learning from your peers, and so much more. For example, I just released a juicy article entitled, Is Nature Photography Considered Art? I'd love to see you over there. Just head over to npn.link forward slash fstop to join. Use the code fstop10 for a 10% discount. That's npn.link forward slash fstop. Okay, let's get to the show. Right. Tim Baca, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Great to be here. Great. It's great to have you here, man. Uh, I understand you're in a hotel room in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, I guess I wasn't uh, done with my traveling. I wanted to do a little bit more traveling before I go back to my full-time job, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, I feel like we've had lots of fun conversations on social media and I think Wayne Suggs is actually the person who told me I should get in touch with you and I'm uh, pretty much if Wayne tells me I should do something, I do it. So that's that's why we're here. <laughs> that's kind of the rule that I follow as well. So it's worked out for me so far. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He's a he's such a cool dude. But anyway, this podcast is about you. So, you know, for people that are not familiar with you and your photography, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Tim Baca. I started in photography in 2017. Uh, photography was kind of a it kind of just happened. Um, I started storm chasing in 2017 and I borrowed a camera from a buddy just so I could kind of remember what I saw out there, kind of have that physical memory to look back at. And after getting that out there in the field, I just fell in love with it. Uh, living here in New Mexico, I do a lot of landscape here in New Mexico. So it's, it's just so vast. So I, uh, I really fell in love with photography out of that. And landscape is kind of how I cover the rest of the year whenever storms aren't happening. Um, nice. So you do this. So storm chasing came first. Yeah. Storm chasing came first and then the photography just kind of snuck in there on me. Bit me pretty hard <laughs> though. Totally. And uh, it's, you said earlier that you have a full-time job and I'm just curious what, what it is you do for full-time work and are you married? Do you have kids and, and where do you live when you're not traveling chasing storms? Uh, yeah, I live in New Mexico. And uh, I'm actually a wind turbine technician, so I climb and repair wind turbines. I've been doing that for about, I think, going on nine years now. And, uh, oh, wow. Not married. Uh, it's in the talks. It's in, in the talks for some time in the near-ish future. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'd be curious to hear what kind of views you've been able to get from the tops of those wind turbines. <laughs> oh, man. They're, it's such an amazing view up there. Whenever, whenever storms are in the area, I can't be up there, but uh, that's right. exactly where I would want to be. Kind of shoot lightning from up on a wind turbine, that'd be 
not very smart, but it'd be uh, awesome views. Right. It'd be like Thor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they keep me from doing uh, things like that, so it's probably to my advantage. Yeah. What, what part of New Mexico do you live in? Uh, so I live in the Eastern Plains in Santa Rosa, and uh, okay. I actually work in the in central New Mexico. So it's a little bit of a commute every day. Oh, wow. Okay. Nice. So you so you don't mind driving because you have to do it every day as it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a 70-mile commute to work every day, so it's pretty normal. It doesn't quite touch what we do for storm chasing, the uh, the amount of miles that we put in, but it's you know it gets you kind of prepared. Right. And um, I understand that you uh, that you grew up there in eastern New Mexico. Is that right? Yeah, born and raised. I uh, lived in Texas for a little bit, and New Mexico just called me back, and I've just kind of re-fell in love with it once I discovered photography. There's just so many different things to shoot. It's it kind of it holds my attention very well. I don't have to travel very far to to go shoot something for the weekend. Gotcha. Well, what was it like uh, growing up in eastern New Mexico? Because it, it's, I, ha- I have a vision in my mind of what it looks like, but I would maybe like you to just describe it and kind of talk about what that culture is like too. Well, it's pretty flat <laughs> compared to the rest <laughs> of New Mexico. But yeah, we're, we're out on the uh, high desert, so we have pretty much all four seasons, uh, extremely cold in the winter, extremely hot in the summer. Uh, but I actually live in what's called the City of Natural Lakes. So growing up, I was pretty much a fish. I would go out to the lake. My grandma would take me and just spend the the whole day pretty much swimming during the summers. Gotcha. That makes sense. I I didn't know there was a lot of water out there. <laughs> yeah, I think there around Santa Rosa, we have something in the neighborhood of 12 or 13 lakes. Okay, nice. Well, good, good to know. So I'm curious then, how did growing up in that part of New Mexico uh, influence your photography at all? Well, it kind of made me a lot more creative. I uh, grew up an only child, so I was always having to invent ways to keep myself busy. And I think that kind of helped with my creativity and kind of forced me to use that part of my brain a lot more when I was growing up. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. And did you... So I, so I grew up in Colorado Springs and... You know, back, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 43. So, you know, I'm an 80, I'm a product of the 80s. And I remember in the summertime, you could literally set your watch to the thunderstorms that would come in every afternoon. And I'm curious if you had the same experience growing up as well. Oh, yeah. Every, every day in the summertime, you would start to see storms bubbling up on the mountains about, uh, they'd start up about one o'clock or so. And yeah. they would start coming towards town about three, four o'clock once they detached from the mountains and just love that, that nice summer rain, the sound of the, the rain hitting the tin roof and the rumbling of the thunder just puts, uh, puts me in a calm place, which is probably a little strange for, for most people. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious then, cause I, it sounds like you're a lot like me when I was a kid, I, I would, I loved thunderstorms, like, you know, like, especially if they were at night. You know, I think that was another, for me, it really connected me with storms and with nature and the power of nature. And and um, I'm not a storm chaser myself, but I do love me a good storm. So I'm curious kind of if those experiences growing up has any has had any influence on your desire to be a storm chaser. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think they were all part of the, the seed that was planted in me when I was pretty young. Uh, my mom, she's always loved storms as well, and that's kind of what's 
put me in that direction. She showed me a twister at a young age and it was kind of over for me at that point. <laughs> I didn't, I never thought that it was a possibility to actually go out there and do it. I just thought it was something that, you know, was on the movie and it wasn't really life or there wasn't, there weren't storm chasers that actually went out and did this stuff. And, uh, I was wrong. <laughs> Gladly. I found that out. Totally. Well, what is it about storm chasing that keeps you doing it? Because, you know, from my perspective, having never done it, it looks like a ton of work. It looks dangerous, a whole bunch of driving and potentially, depending on the conditions, a lot of missed opportunities. So I'm curious what it is that keeps you doing it. Well, storms, they kind of ground me. They, they make me realize just how small I am in this large world. When you're standing underneath a, a thunderstorm, a supercell that's, you know, 60, sometimes 65, 70,000 feet tall, it's just, it, it's overwhelming almost, but it puts me in a place of calmness and it kind of, it resets my brain. You know, it's, it's my happy place. And the cool thing about storms is it's, it's always changing. It's not going to, you know, a local spot to go take photos or photos or anything. It's traveling all over the country seeing a different storm every day, hopefully. Hopefully it's not a blue sky bust, but those those definitely happen. But yeah, it's just kind of that, that whole something different every day. It kind of holds my attention really well. What happens on those days where, where it's a quote-unquote blue sky bust? How do you recover from that? That is usually a lot of bad gas station food and uh, an alcoholic beverage back at the hotel room when you're uh, kind of licking your wounds. <laughs> So no, so no photography happens. Is that what I'm hearing? It depends on what, what location I'm at. If I'm somewhere where there's a, a really interesting kind of scenery going on or some kind of old buildings, I, I'm infatuated with old buildings, you know, old houses, old barns, any of them. Oh, yeah. um, so if, if it's a blue sky bust and I'm around somewhere where there's those type of things can go get me some sun, sunset shots in and just have a good time. Usually whenever we're waiting around for storms, it's, you know, a group of us, a group of friends that are just hanging out together in a, either out by a field somewhere in a Casey's gas station parking lot. That's where we always usually end up. But yeah, so it's, it's that whole camaraderie of it that we get to experience whenever we don't actually chase storms. Yeah. And why don't you, uh, why don't you paint a picture for me? Because obviously, you know, storms are predictable but they're also you know it's not like it's not like you know exactly when one's going to actually happen totally and i'm guessing if you have a job you can't always just put down what you're doing and go chase a storm so maybe walk us through a little bit about uh, a typical day in the life of a storm chaser from the the time you realize there's going to be a storm to the actual engagement of the storm itself okay yeah, I'll usually start looking at computer models uh, usually about two to three weeks out and start kind of watching the air patterns for the winds in the upper atmosphere, seeing, you know, what, what it's looking like and kind of trend those, see if it's trending better or if it's looking like it's going to be worse. And I kind of keep watching that and you get more of an idea of a day when something might actually happen. So there's a lot of times that I'll take off of work. Uh, request a day off from work a week in advance for a storm and you know it happens perfectly then there's other times when you do that and there's not any storms and you just wasted vacation time for anything 
<laughs> well, it definitely yeah. happens. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like almost every photographer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to be good Aurora, and then you go, and it's nothing, and now here you are 600 miles from home. Yeah, I think – I think that's one of the reasons why I've personally tried to shy away from condition dependent, eh, excuse me, condition dependent photography, just because I've been burned so many times that it was kind of a, it was just, you know, the consecutive letdowns was just killing me. So I'm curious if you've dealt with that at all. Yeah, it definitely takes a toll on you. But uh, to me, it's like anything else. If I go out to a mountain to shoot a sunset and it ends up being a blue sky, it just gives me a reason to go out and do it again, go out and experience it again. And I'm all for any time I get to spend out there in the middle of nowhere. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, then, okay. So going back to my, my earlier question then. So you've you've looked at the models. You've, uh, you've determined the day to go. And now it's the day that you're going. So walk us through what that day might look like. Yeah, you get up in the morning, you pack up your vehicle, and you start driving. And then you drive some more. And then when you think you're almost there, you still keep driving. <laughs> that's that's pretty much most of the day of a storm chaser. You know, you drive out. Uh, there's days that I've woke up there at home in Santa Rosa and you know, three in the mornings, looked at models and decided that I wanted to chase up in South Dakota that day. So here we go, wow. packing up the truck and drive up to South Dakota and chase storms that evening. So it's no kidding. Yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty wild. The amount of hours, just hours and hours that you spend inside of a vehicle going from target to target. And there, there'll be some days where, you know, you're down in Texas chasing. And then the next day, the setup's supposed to be up in Nebraska or something like that. And, you know, you have to start after you're done storm chasing, after you drove hours to get to that spot, you have to jump back in the truck and start heading towards your target for the next day so you can make it in time. You know, find a hotel room, car camp. Uh, I know a lot of us do a lot of car camping just to cut down costs, especially this year with the gas prices. So you put a, a lot of miles. Yeah, like on a typical... Typical excursion, let's say it's like a weekend. How many how many miles would you put on your vehicle? Uh, there was one week this year where it was close to 4,000 miles. <laughs> no, 4,500 miles is what it was in, in a seven-day period. Man, that's more than I put on my car in one year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm used to putting a lot of miles on my vehicles, but this definitely gets those miles up there very quickly. Uh, I haven't done the tally. I just got back from three weeks of uh, hosting storm photography workshops, and I, I haven't done a tally on how many miles that we we drove, but it's it's going to be well over 10K that we drove in, in those three weeks. Wow. That is a lot of driving. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's definitely a sedentary type of photography, <laughs> except for when... Lots of opportunity to listen to podcasts. Definitely. There's there's lots of that, <laughs> which is good because there's a, a lot of good ones out there, especially this one here. Spent a lot that's, of time. That's funny. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm just like wondering, like you must binge like every and any podcast you can find. Yeah, I'm always looking for new inventive ways to try to pass the hours on the road. Right. Just to get down here to uh, Albuquerque, I I drove down from, uh, I was in Topeka, Kansas two days ago chasing storms and then drove down 
to Albuquerque for this. I mean, so you're you're doing this as a side business since you know you're doing workshops and stuff. I'm I'm guessing that between hotel rooms and gasoline and food that your your expenses are probably pretty high in order to to run this type of a business model. I mean, like it seems like. Yeah, it's definitely not a a way to get rich, that's for sure. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it it does allow me to be out there and you know do what I love, you know, chase my passion out there, chasing storms. So that's definitely uh, the plus side of doing it, and just being able to share my knowledge with the workshop participants and the look on their face whenever we pull up to this massive sculpted supercell, and they're just looking up and their their jaw just drops. And, you know, they sometimes they forget even how to use the camera at that point just because they're so overwhelmed with what they're looking at. Right. That, that part right there, it makes it well worth it for me. Yeah, no doubt. I feel like you kind of described my what my first Aurora experience was like. It's very similar. You're like, how do I even photograph this? You know? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, uh, I was out chasing with some experienced photographers uh, a little while ago. And... We pulled up and we were shooting this massive supercell in Texas, just this big dust sucker. Just everything was dust blowing all over the place. And uh, one of them, his tripod, uh, his, excuse me, his uh, ball head on his tripod, it wasn't screwed on tight. So while he was trying to shoot, the ball head was moving around, and uh, the other the other gentleman, he was pulling out batteries for his camera, and every battery he pulled out was a dead battery. So it, it even overwhelms more experienced chasers and more experienced photographers just with how immense these storms are and just how breathtaking these these sights can be. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing it tapes, takes a certain personality to be able to to execute it well and to stay calm and to capture the image um, without making too many mistakes. Oh, definitely. But... A good thing is uh, I'm decent at Photoshop, so those mistakes, I can handle some of them. <laughs> right on. Well, man, so like I'm a logistics kind of a person. Like I kind of like to think about the details. And so I've always wondered for these storm chasing trips, you know, you know, you said, okay, we're going to go to South Dakota. And, you know, my thing would be, be getting worried about like taking the wrong road or taking a road that, you know, doesn't go where you think it goes or, you know, or finding yourself on a road that's, you know, exceeds your vehicle's capabilities or maybe maybe it got mudded out from an earlier storm or something like that because it's not like you're scouting these places totally. So, like, what are, what are the ways that you kind of prevent yourself from finding yourself in a really precarious uh, situation in terms of that? Yeah, generally... Um, if it's an area, because I watch to see what, what areas have been getting moisture leading on up to the storm chase itself. And odds are I have some friend that's out there chasing the storms there, you know, previously. So they kind of give a heads up. Also, I do a lot with the uh, satellite imagery um, with Onyx Maps. I use it for my hiking to mark compositions, mark mark the trails that I've been on. But I use it a lot for navigation while I'm out in the field. and. Uh, what I like about that is I can look to see if it's a little two-track road that it's trying to take me on or if it's an actual decent dirt road or uh, hopefully a paved road, which a lot of places we go, there's not too many of those. 
that and uh, Garmin. I have a, a Garmin that does really good with navigating if we're going from city to city. But I, I mainly try to stay on the main paved roads just because that's how you make up most of your time. Uh, when it gets down to the actual storm chasing, I'll usually be on, on dirt roads just to avoid all the other traffic out there. Mm-hmm. If it's a if it's a high risk day or moderate day, it's a level four or five on the on the scale. There could be you know thousands of storm chasers out there. So the only way to stay out of that kind of traffic and that mayhem is to be out on the side roads and be away from everybody else, the the places that the other chasers don't want to go on. Oh, I had no idea there's that many people out doing this. <laughs> oh, there's there's tons, especially if you chase uh, like a weekend set up in Oklahoma. There's going to be thousands of people that are out there. Huh. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm curious for you. How are you trying to differentiate yourself as a storm photographer, considering that there's so many well-established storm photographers in the space already? For me, what I've been doing, what I've been trying to do is I like to add a nice foreground element with my photos. I like to make it more uh, a complete image, a more more of a landscape photo with a beautiful storm in it than just a storm. I think a lot of a lot of people in the past just wanted to take a photo of just the storm and you have this little sliver horizon. And to me, it's it's just lacking so much because the whole view of it is what is amazing to me you know not just this massive beautiful supercell but what is it impacting what's underneath this thing is it a a beautiful lake is there a single tree up on a hill and i kind of look for those things and add those into my photos Uh, i sometimes miss uh, opportunities for photos that other storm photographers will will be able to get but in the long run i come out with an image that i'm really happy with but that's right. been my approach to it. And that's mainly from living here in New Mexico and, you know, shooting a lot of landscape photography. It's kind of helped my eye pick those compositions out fairly quick while I'm out there on the road. What would you say is uh, are some interesting compositional elements or strategies to um, make a storm image more than just a storm image? I like to add something that shows scale. So whether it be a, a single tree out in the field and you're showing just how massive this supercell is above it or uh, an old building showing that, you know, even though this huge storm is rolling through here and I'm, I'm sure many, many have gone over that building before, it's still standing there strong. But those are some of the main things I look for, something to be able to show scale and something to show the actual I guess effects of the storms, you know, old weather gotcha. buildings, uh, drainage, um, drainage ditches that are you know into the uh, the earth itself. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, was, as you were talking earlier, I was thinking if I was doing that, I would, I would want to have more, you know, land, more of the landscape in the image too. And I feel like I would probably do a lot of. Uh, probably like vertical stitching where I would do like a horizontal photo of most of the sky and then another horizontal photo of most of the ground and then something in between and stitch it and then, you know, crop it later based on what I want to keep in the frame. Do you, do you use that strategy at all? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely do some, some panels like that once in a while. I, uh, I shoot a lot with 11 millimeter 
on the full frame, so uh, I can get quite a bit of it in there. And I, right. I, I tend to stay a little bit further back, just more of a, I'm more of a storm structure, storm chaser. A lot of other storm chasers that like to be right under the storm and, you know, right next to the, the area where a tornado is going to form if it forms, which I'll, I'll do that too. But if I have a chance to get out and just get some, some beautiful structure, I'll usually take that over, you know, slim chance of a tornado. So I'm able to get right. quite a bit of everything in from, you know, five, 10 miles out. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, do you ever uh, do any telephoto work of these storms? Yeah, yeah. Telephoto is really nice for these because it lets you use that lens compression to to help with that scale. But usually, usually I shoot anywhere between twelve and thirty-five millimeter. For lightning, I like to use uh, twenty-four to one hundred five. Mm-hmm. So that fifty that fifty millimeter range is a really good range for lightning. Right. You know, you get a nice large bolt, and it doesn't put you, you know, too close to the lightning itself. Right. Totally. I'm curious, how has storm chasing made you a better photographer for other non-storm related subjects? What it's done is it's it's taught me how to use my camera very well and how to adjust my settings and everything just on the fly. Everything happens with storm chasing so quickly. You have sometimes just, you know, 30 seconds or so to get this shot or lightning, which is you know, milliseconds. So it's taught me to to be a lot quicker with how I can set up and, and everything. But it's also trained my eye a little better to be able to pick out what I want to shoot quicker. I can go out to shoot landscape and just walking around, I'm able to kind of pick out my composition a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's, what are what are your strategy what are your strategies for capturing lightning? Usually I like to stand out, you know, Five ten miles from the storm, set up with the twenty four to one hundred five, and I'll set the camera sometimes on intervalometer if it's later on at night when I can have a, a longer shutter speed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, otherwise, during the day, I like to use a myops lightning trigger, and uh, what it does is it senses the frequency that lightning puts out, and it actually triggers your camera for you. Right. Which that and... saves a lot of uh, space on the SD card. <laughs> <laughs> right, like so for a for a lightning trigger, what are some, I mean we usually don't talk much about gear on this podcast, but I've always been curious. Um, like, do you are you is there like an optimum combination of shutter speed and aperture for that sort of setup, or I mean, what have you found that works pretty good for those more like evening, daytime, afternoon type shots with the trigger? Yeah, what seems to work best is you know having a shutter speed that's you know, slower than one eighth of a second, just so you have a, a longer time to actually capture the lightning. What a lot gotcha. of times that happens whenever it's a shorter shutter speed is it'll actually take the photo before the return strike of the lightning. So you think that you're missing the bolt because your camera's delayed, but what's actually going on is you're taking the photo too quickly and you're missing the uh, the return strike, which is often what we capture on the photos itself. Interesting. <laughs> learn something new every day. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a whole nother world when you start uh, messing around a lot with lightning photography. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've captured lightning a few times, but it's always been kind of one of those after dark, long exposure type scenarios. And I don't know, like that to me, that's not that hard, <laughs> right? 
yeah, you can just leave that shutter open for 30 seconds or so and have fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, get creative and combine images and post and blah, 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 blah. But um, I've never had luck capturing lightning during the day. So um, that makes a lot of sense, though, what you described. So you're talking like probably like F-16 and taking your ISO down even below native, like ISO 50, that kind of a thing? Yeah, I usually I usually like to stay about ISO 100. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll adjust my F-stop down to whatever whatever is needed to get that shutter speed where I want it in that sweet spot. Uh, a lot of people use ND filters. Uh, I've never been a, a filter guy. I've never used really any filters. So uh, I need to I need to give that a try. That way I'm not putting that f stop at f16, f f20, and seeing my dust spots. <laughs> yeah, I've I've heard conflicting information about using using ND filters for for lightning because I feel like while it does you know require you to leave the shutter open for longer, it also blocks how much light enters the sensor. So um, I think that could work if the lightning is like really bright um but i don't know yeah it definitely does affect it your bolts will be like little slivers instead of these big vibrant flashes right right same thing same thing with the uh, the iso being at 100 or, or 50 and then throwing the, the f-stop to f-16 or more it kind of has that same effect on it it's got to be you know right. decently close lightning to to not affect it much yeah well, so how the heck do you even get started in storm chasing? Because I feel like most people wouldn't even know where to begin, <laughs> including myself. Well, the first step is to go about it not the way I did, and you'll probably be already uh, a step up. <laughs> but yeah, how I did is I just I just got in my truck. Um, I downloaded a couple apps on my phone, and I looked on the uh, Storm Prediction Center Outlook for the next day's storms and I just drove out there and got myself into places that I probably shouldn't have been. So I recommend, yeah, it's, it can get a little hairy when you don't know what you're doing whatsoever, but uh, you do learn quickly that way. <laughs> no, what I recommend right. is no, of find you, uh, find you somebody that's experienced with storm chasing. Uh, see if you can ride along with them. Uh, there's a lot of uh, storm chasing tours and storm chasing workshops to be able to take and they'll get you out there, kind of get you familiar with positioning and, and teach you a little bit on it and, uh, you know, hit the books. There's plenty of books out there about, uh, you know, meteorology aspect of it. Uh, there's a couple websites that have uh, free classes to take and just learn everything you can. You know, every day is a learning experience, even for an experienced chaser, uh, every setup, has a little bit different approach to it and different look to it on the models. And every day is something new to learn when you're dealing with meteorology and storm chasing. Can you talk a little bit about the safety aspect of storm chasing? Like what are some, some of the major considerations that people should be keeping in mind in order to stay safe? One of the biggest things is if you aren't familiar with it, you're, you don't have experience with the uh, storms maintain your distance from it don't try to get right up on the storm you know stay 10 15 miles out from it um just kind of get you some experience with it first always have an escape route 
you know, always have multiple escape routes if there's, you know, multiple directions you can travel away from this thing. Uh, they can speed up very quickly and they can go from a garden variety thunderstorm to a massive supercell with four inch hail and no time whatsoever. So definitely, you know, stay stay out of the direct path of it. Uh, there's apps like Radar Scope and Radar Omega that you can download and they actually, you know, show what direction the storm's going. Yeah, just I have that keep app. your distance from it. Yeah, Radar, Radar Scope. Scope. Oh yeah, that's the, yeah, that's a the good tried one. and true classic right there. <laughs> yeah, it's good for um when you're in the mountains too, like you're trying to avoid nasty weather. I was in particularly nasty set of storms last summer and I was with David Kingham and he was like, you should get this app. And I did. And it was fun to watch the storm. <laughs> oh yeah. It kind of gives you a heads up of what's coming your way. It's really nice to have. <laughs> I've used it when I'm out just doing landscape photography stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what, um, what's the scariest moment that you've ever been in when you've been chasing a storm? Well, it actually happened this year. Um, me and my girlfriend were in Texas, and we were chasing a, a shelf cloud, a line of storms, just south of Dallas. Uh, it had got dark on us, so we were just out there shooting some lightning on this incoming shelf cloud. And up to our north, we saw this explosion, so uh, we went to go check that out, see what was going on. We're, we're pretty curious, I guess. And uh, when we were headed up that way, this shelf cloud, which normally doesn't produce tornadoes it's basically just an outflow driven uh line of storms it's a gust front uh it actually wrapped up and uh got rotation to it and went tornado warned as we were out there by that uh that site where that explosion happened and before we could do anything else the rain hit us and it was just a complete blackout you know we couldn't see the road we could barely see the hood of the vehicle so uh, what we did is we actually just nosed the truck into this ditch along the side of the road with some trees around us and uh, just kind of kept facing the wind, just mainly for the, the hail that was in the storm, a wind-driven hail, something that's under one inch can shatter your windows easily. So when the wind would shift, we would kind of back the truck up and point the nose back in the wind. And after that passed through and you know we started to get some visibility, we were actually in the damage path of a small tornado that passed through. So they did the uh, the survey on it. National Weather Service did a survey the next day. And yep, sure enough, it was confirmed that there was a tornado that planted right there by us and went into this town just up the road and did a, a little bit of damage over there. Some some roofs were taken off and some power poles snapped. But that's probably the, yeah. uh, that's probably the wildest thing that I've got myself into so far. And you've, it's not like you've been doing it that long. So I feel like you've got plenty more of uh, interesting stories yet to come. <laughs> oh, yeah, probably so. For the for the workshops, it's a totally different deal because, you know, you're trying to capture these photos further out and not put people into those risks, that's for sure. But when I'm out right, there just right. trying to get video of something, you know, I'll, I'll try to get closer to a, to a storm that way I can get, you know, decent video from, you know, few hundred yards out from a tornado or you know, try to get into some bigger hail now and then in my in my personal vehicle my my storm chasing vehicle i'm not too worried about the windows on that thing but it's got plenty of plenty of hail dents from other storms <laughs> so 
you know, you're doing this as a business and I'm assuming you've got some insurance coverage. Does, does your insurance company know that you're taking clients into storms? <laughs> yeah, surprisingly they do. <laughs> they That's do. Awesome. And, uh, they, they actually classified it as a, like a sightseeing workshop, which was kind of huh. confusing to me because I thought they were going to red flag it at the start of it, but no, they were, right. they were pretty understandable and they wanted to see pictures. <laughs> That's cool. Good, good deal. Cause I feel like every time I've gotten insurance, sometimes they'll ask you a question and you, depending on how you answer it, they might be like, okay, sounds good. Or then they might be like, okay, we need to do more research. So it sounds <laughs> like you got a little lucky. <laughs> Yeah, they they definitely, you know, they didn't do it right away. They definitely went and did some research on it. And the key is to not name your storm chasing workshop a storm chasing workshop because that's a, a red flag right from the beginning when you talk to the insurance people. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, tor- tornado Alley uh, Adventures LLC. <laughs> there you go. That's why I went with extreme yeah. photography workshops. <laughs> kind of, yeah, kind of vague, simple. but it still has it. Right, right. Uh, that's awesome. Well, so you won the Storm Photographer of the Year in 2020. And um, I was curious if you could describe uh, your winning image. Yeah, for the uh, Storm Photography uh, Contest, Storm Photo of the Year category, or Storm Photographer of the Year category, you have to submit eight to ten images, so a little portfolio. And uh, I submitted mostly images that contained, you know, single trees, other kind of leading lines. And but what what got it for me was I think they were more complete landscape photos instead of uh, some of the other stuff I had seen was just mostly you know sky and uh, a field. And some of mine were actually fields that you don't see very much in storm chasing stuff that's later on in the year like a milo that's ready to be harvested that really purplish brown color that it gets that's something that you normally don't see out there storm chasing and uh, that was a a pretty big hit on there that makes sense i feel like that storm chasing or storm photography community i would have to think is i mean it's not like tens of thousands of people competing like what how big of a pool of people did you compete against uh, i think they had something around 300 entries something around there because it's a oh, okay. yeah it's a, a worldwide contest so anybody right. can uh, can enter it yeah i think bernard uh was in that as well wasn't he from ireland uh yeah he was uh, a judge for this year's contest oh, okay <laughs> that's cool right on well, yeah, cool. Well, so last, what are your... Oh, go ahead. For last year's contest, it was uh, Michael Binsky, Nick Page, and Mike Mazzol. Yeah, nice. Well, what are your... Like, not to change the subject, but um, just in general, kind of what are your thoughts on photography competitions and what do you, what is it that compels you to enter your work into them? For me, I think it's all about how the photographer handles it. Because um, you can you can use that photography contest to empower you to want to do better, or you can use it to just look down at your work and look down at other people's work. So I think it really relies on, 
you know, lies on the photographer themselves. The way I view them is I see it as, you know, all these beautiful photos and it's, it's a push for me to want to do better. And it's a push to get me out in the field and, you know, get these views that nobody else is getting. I'm all for them. I I love the, uh, any kind of photography contest. Right on. Well, cool, man. I, uh, I also wanted to ask you a question about this one's a little bit more personal, but I remember listening to a podcast with a storm chaser. I think it was Justin Sneed actually. And he was talking about, I think he had like a girlfriend who basically gave him an ultimatum to either quit storm chasing um, or basically break up. If I remember correctly. And he, he chose storm chasing, which I thought was awesome. But I'm sure it was not an easy decision, and I might have messed that story up a little bit. But um, that was a long-winded way of me kind of asking, you know, you're spending all of this time out on the road, away from your girlfriend. Has it had any impact on your relationship at all? Yeah, it's it's cost a few relationships in the past. Um, you know, that scenario with Justin, I think that's exactly how it went. And uh, I've I've faced <laughs> that same scenario before. <laughs> And uh, I'm still out storm chasing, so I guess you can guess which direction that went. But <laughs> uh, right now, uh, my girlfriend, she's actually a storm chaser and a photographer herself. So it's actually time that we get to spend together instead of uh, time that we're away from each other. So I, I get to chase a lot more than she does because I have more time off from work. But uh, we do get to stand, get to spend about half the time out in the field together and experiencing those views so it's right now it's it's been great you know but in the past there has been issues with you know the lack of time to to put towards loved ones and it it definitely takes a toll on relationships uh whether it be significant other or uh, even family members themselves because you know you're out there you miss there could be an amazing setup and you know i i'm very passionate about storm photography and storm chasing that if there's a, a really amazing setup and it's, you know, a little family get together, I'm probably going to be out at that setup. So it definitely puts a lot of strain on, on relationships. But the key is to just keep chugging along at it. And, you know, eventually you're going to find somebody that can put up with your nonsense. And this is just like about any, any other hobby or occupation. You just got to find somebody that can deal with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds about right. Um, and I'm curious for you kind of internally, what was that experience life like in terms of, you know, feeling like you had to choose between a relationship and a passion? And because it's, you know, I feel like that's a lose lose situation where you're, you're probably going to constantly second guess your decision. Yeah, it definitely takes a toll on you. Uh, I know there were times that, you know, I'd be out there chasing a storm after that happened and you know you spend a lot of time thinking that over thinking your decision making sure that you know like you said double double guessing if you chose right and you're actually missing the storm that you did it all for you know when you're out there thinking about it but uh it it definitely takes a toll on you yeah yeah for sure and you know it's i feel like you know you're probably filled with feelings of guilt and a little bit of resentment and, but also, you know, confusion, like it must just be a very challenging experience while at the same time, you're like, I really just want to experience this event. Um, 
And I'm guessing that it kind of can detract from the overall experience when you find yourself in those situations. Oh, definitely. And I've, you know, when those situations would come up, you know, in the past, I've offered to to bring them out to go experience it. And uh, what's what's a big turn away from that is uh, the amount of hours that we're out driving. You know, a lot of people don't want to be in a vehicle for, you know, up to 16 hours a day. But it definitely, it's a hard choice to make. Um, but in the end, you know, it all it all works out. And what I've seen with it is, you know, sometimes you have to make the sacrifice and not go to that storm because, you know, certain events are only once in a lifetime. You know, your nephew's mm-hmm. only going to be five once. You know, your cousin's only going to get married once, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so, some of these things you have to kind of, choose because you know as as everyone knows life is fragile uh we're not on this planet for a long time so you gotta enjoy your your time with your loved ones and you know in doing that you also have to live your life you also have to go out and experience what life in this world has to offer and if you turn down every opportunity to go out and witness these things then uh, you know what kind of life are you actually living that's that's where I see it, anyways. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, in in any hobby or like extreme, um, I don't know, artistic pursuit or physical pursuit, whether it be mountain climbing or rock climbing or storm chasing or international travel photography, those kind of things. I feel like you're always going to find somebody who's doing it like way more extreme than you are, and of course because of that time commitment, they're probably, you know, from any objective perspective, they're doing, they're experiencing way more than you are. Right. And that can always feel kind of, I don't know, it just puts you in a place where you're like kind of envious, but at the same time, um, and obviously I'm painting with a pretty big brush here, but almost every person I know that's like that, who's, you know, like 110% of their life is that one thing. Like their life is very one dimensional. Usually like they don't have a relationship with anybody. They don't have kids. Um, they don't have a ton of friends and like, it's just, it's interesting to see from an outside perspective, what that lifestyle actually looks like once you start to really kind of put a microscope on it. And I'm curious if you've had a, any similar revelations yourself. Yeah, I think, you know, the past few years, I would pretty much skip anything to go out and storm chase. And uh, this year, I've been thinking about it a lot more. On you know, I, I recently had a cousin pass away, and really got me to thinking. And you know, these storms, you know, there there could be once in a lifetime events. You know, a lot of them are well. I mean, a storm is like a fingerprint; it's never the same exact storm twice. But you know, these family events, these the time with the loved ones and that's also once in a lifetime event sometimes. And just Mm -hmm. if you put everything into your passion, yeah, you're going to be, you know, amazing at it. You're going to experience stuff that, you know, possibly no other person experiences, but you know, that, that leaves everything else kind of empty. And uh, I've definitely been putting a lot more thought into time with the family, significant others over, you know, going to every single setup that's out there. There'll, yeah. there'll be more. 
you know, there'll, there'll be more storms. It's tough to admit sometimes, but <laughs> there's, there's going to be stuff yeah. you miss. Yeah. I'm doing, I've been doing a lot of the same thing. Like my son's 14, he's going into high school and, you know, this summer, you know, I'm trying to spend more time with him just doing stuff he might be interested in that has nothing to do with photography or hiking or mountain climbing. You know, he's really into music and he's into video games and he's into, of all things, he's really into um, watching baseball, um, which I also like. So we're going to watch baseball games together and stuff like that, which, you know, that means less time behind the camera. And But you know what? He might, he's only going to be in this age for so long. And so I'm definitely feeling that, that pull to want to spend more time with my family for sure. Oh yeah. It's definitely about finding a healthy balance, you know, whether it be storm photography or mountain climbing, any, any kind of extreme hobby, like you said that, you know, you could put so much time and effort into that you lose track of the big picture, but uh, it's definitely a must to find a happy medium and kind of something that works for not only for you, but for your loved ones and the people around you. Cause when you're doing this stuff, you're not only sacrificing for yourself. I mean, your, your friends are sacrificing, uh, your family sacrificing. It's, it's a tough balance to find, but it's definitely worth it to, to seek that out. Yeah. It's a good thing. You yeah. guys get to enjoy baseball together. That's pretty often or pretty, pretty awesome to have that in common. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's finally I found something he enjoys. <laughs> That's the hard part sometimes with your kids. <laughs> well, there was a there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and and I don't even really know how to ask the question, so you're gonna have to bear with me for a minute. But I've I've had a few photographers on the show that I've talked to about storm chasing that they've done, and kind of one of the undercurrents that I've heard from a lot of people is that there can be um, a culture within the storm chasing community that a lot of people are put off by or that they don't, that they don't like. And I'm wondering if you have any idea what they're talking about. And if so, if you could describe what that might be, um, cause I've always been curious about, you know, what is that culture and why don't people like it? Well, I mean, for me, I try to stay out of just about any any kind of issues or any kind of drama that's associated with that that kind of stuff. Um, I've learned that if you kind of just keep to yourself, um, keep close to your friends, and just try to overall be a good person and not cause any any trouble for <laughs> any any little insignificant issue, uh, that you end up doing pretty well with it and don't really have to deal with that uh negative aspect of it so i'm i don't really know where it all stems from but there's there can you know just like any any crowd itself there's going to be people that you know think you know other other people are beneath them because they've been doing it forever or they're amazing at it or something but as long as uh, you're just out there for for yourself i mean for, gotcha you know not not worried yeah, about gonna, other people I feel like you're gonna f- find that in any hobby or, or community. Like my, my mom is really into, into bird watching and she's always complaining to me about these bird watchers that do some of that kind of stuff. Like they, you know, they 
they don't let certain people in their groups or their email chats or like it's a really toxic culture in the bird watching community. So it sounds like maybe there's a little bit of that same dynamic going on and storm chasing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of surprising to hear in the uh, bird watching community. That's <laughs> yeah. pretty wild. <laughs> it shows yeah, just the, about. Yeah. I, was, I guess the takeaway is like, the, um, there's just uh, obnoxious and annoying people in any group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it, it's, it's sad to uh, say, but if, you don't know who they are, then you might be them. But yeah, yeah, I mean <laughs> that's true. Unless you're called out for it, um, you might not realize that you might be that person. I guess I don't know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but from uh, I kind of I kind of do the same for you know storm chasing, storm photography that I do with the rest of my life. I just try not to be a jerk. Try to be a good person. Do what I can for people and. You know, let the rest kind of take care of itself. Seems like good advice to me. I uh, I had an instructor for a class I took for some, you know, wiring, wiring diagrams and reading schematics a few years back. And what he said uh, best to do is to play in your own sandbox. So instead of worrying about what other people are doing in their sandbox, just kind of, you know, worry about what's going on in your sandbox and you'll end up being a lot happier in the end. So true. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Tim, why don't you tell us about your uh, storm photography workshops and how people can learn more about those? Yeah, what we actually do is we'll take you out, take you to the plains. Um, we'll go over forecasting and how we come about our our locations that we pick for storms and you know, teach you how to be safe and get a lot of miles under your seat. <laughs> we'll, we'll drive <laughs> you around for days and days and days. It's actually kind of, I don't think you can prepare for how many hours you end up in a vehicle. It's just wild. But yeah, we'll we'll take you all over the uh, central plains in search of severe weather and get you some awesome photographs in front of some cool places, some cool buildings and show you a great time. But if uh, you want to learn more on our website, it's extremephotoworkshops.com, and all the information is on there. Nice. And are, are those set dates, or do people have to have more of a flexible schedule, or how does that work? Well, what allows with my time off from work is we do three of them a summer, well, I guess a spring. <laughs> we start in the last week of May, and uh, then it goes for pretty much three weeks. We do three separate seven-day workshops. This year we were hosting at Oklahoma City, so it, it worked out pretty good for the uh, first two workshops. And the the third workshop we ended up in the uh, Northern Plains quite a bit, up in you know Northern Nebraska, uh, South Dakota. But we kind of just go wherever the uh, the wind blows, pretty much. We put about um, rough estimate around thirteen thousand miles or so in that uh, three week period. Wow. <laughs> So bring a good book, listen, to, bring some podcasts with you, or hope to God that the people you're with are talkative, if you're also talkative. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Bring something to kind of keep you occupied. And what uh, we'll, we'll also do when we're traveling is I'll, I'll put a movie on on the iPad and 
you know, we'll play Twister for everybody to get them into the the mood to see some amazing storms. But yeah, we'll we'll play some movies and stuff like that to kind of pass the times, and we'll go over you know different storm experiences, and it's usually a pretty pretty fun ride in the vehicle, talking with everybody, getting to know everybody, getting to know their their history, and you know the things that really drive them and stuff they're passionate about. Right. So that's that's always a really great time with it. Cool. All right, Tim. Well, last question. Who would you recommend uh, that our listeners learn more about or who we should have here on the show? I had to give this one a lot of thought because I have a, a lot of amazing friends that are amazing, amazing photographers. Um, I would say Jake Worth, uh, excellent storm photographer, amazing landscape photographer. David Turning, uh, we got him out for storms this year, and he's been pumping out some photos that'll blow your mind. And then Justin Sneed, he's got a very unique style and flow to his storm photography. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the recommendations, Tim, and I wish you the best of luck in your storm chasing adventures and and, uh, can't wait to see what images you're able to produce uh, this summer. Yeah, it's been a great time, Matt, and I appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Well, thanks to Tim for spending the time with me this week to talk about his storm chasing adventures. It sounds like a ton of fun to go out there and experience the raw power of nature firsthand. I also really loved what you had to say about photography competitions. I recently entered a few competitions as well, and I can't wait to see how I did. Speaking of competitions, we are still accepting entries for the Natural Landscape Photography Awards until August 31st. Our goal is to to discover and showcase the best realistic landscape and nature photography on the planet. Other than having a shot at winning over $38,000 in prizes, you can also set the goal of having your work appear in our fine art book, which you will receive for free if you do. We offer more cash prizes than both Epson and International Landscape Photographer of the Year. We exist to promote this style of work and nothing more. I think it's the best competition that exists, and it exists for you. Just go to naturallandscapeawards.com to enter today. I also want to spend a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. I honestly can't thank you all enough, and it really does help a lot. Producing a podcast every single week like this takes a ton of time and effort, and I just hope that people find it valuable. Thank you to Devin Rogers, Barbara Laverie, Michael Schertzberg, Madeline Lanau, Tim Rate, and Caleb Allen. You are all awesome. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.